0: we want to talk about being a missional church this morning and what does that mean to be a missional church and really to be the answer to that uh prayer we just sang um where you lead me god i will follow wherever you lead me and and that's that's a great song to sing you know it's, that's an awesome song so many ways but what does that mean practically in our lives and i think a lot of times we're like god yeah i would go anywhere i would i would cross the seas for, i would do whatever you want if you call me to go that's great. That's wonderful. Why don't you go talk to your neighbors? Yeah, I, I don't have time for that. You know, why don't you talk to your co ah, They don't really. Ah, yeah. What about your family member? Yeah, well, I don't. And we start making excuses and bargaining with God. I think a lot of times we look for God to call us to do grand and amazing things. But I think that following Jesus is probably seen more, more clearly in us doing, uh, following Jesus and, and answering that, hey, I'll go wherever you want me to go in the little things. And, and you're not going to be faithful in the big things if you're not faithful in the little things. Um, I have some friends, uh, Trey and Megan Clenny, who were here leading the mission team several weeks ago uh, when they came here. And they're in preparation to go to India, northern India, to be serving with the International Mission Board. One of the things they want to know with these missionaries is, are you guys, when's the last time you led somebody to Jesus? When's the last time you talked to somebody about a relationship with Christ? We have no interest in sending you over to do something over there that you don't do here anyways. And I think that's the key. Do we, are we faithful in the little things? Are we, are we, do we have that kind of mindset? And so we want to be a church that doesn't guilt people that if you love God, you'll talk about him. Now, if you're not talking about him, then there's a disconnect in your love for God. You don't love God more by, by ritualism. You, love, you, you, you get we, we shift to being faithful to proclaim the love of Christ when we're experiencing it regularly in our own lives. And so being a missional church is an overflow of a right relationship with God. There's a lot of misunderstandings about what that means. In fact, if you were to Google search missional church and you searched it, you'd find over a million hits on um, different expressions of uh, missional church. There's about 500,000 maybe five years ago. Now there's a million uh, different articles, thoughts, comments, books about what it means to be a missional church. and the problem is there's not a really clear uh, definition of, of what that means. There's a lot of mis-expressions of what it means to be missional. So as we, we talk about rethinking the church, it's critical for us to define what our purpose is regarding this mission that God has called us to be about as individuals and as the body of Christ, as the local expression of the body of Christ in Cross Life Church. What does it mean to be missional uh, as, as a church? And so we want to be clear on what this means. And it's critical that we understand that uh, that as when you have surrendered your life to Christ, God has called you to be a missionary. Okay, To be a follower of Jesus, to be a missionary. That's what you're called to be. That's the Great Commission. to go into all nations, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Know that I will be with you always through that process. So understanding that, we are all called to be about that. So how do, we, how do we do that? You might say, well, I don't really have the gift of evangelism. It doesn't really matter. That just means you might not be as effective as somebody else. That might not be your sweet spot serving in the body of Christ. But it doesn't mean that you get a pass on the Great Commission. We're all given the Great Commission, and we're all given the Great Commandment, and we need to be about those things. The Great Commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul. Love your neighbors, yourself. Great Commission, go into all nations uh, and make disciples. That's the things we're all commanded to do. We, none of us get a pass on those things. Okay, We all need to be about those things so the challenge for us is is understanding what does it mean to be a miss church how do we do that so let me give you some little background on what's going on in our country and in the culture that we live in and how some things have changed um, that we need to rethink our strategies on what how we do missions um, how we share the gospel how we try to um, to point people to Jesus in our community so the challenge we're facing today as followers of Jesus in the church is that our our world and our nation has uh, changed and is rapidly changing. Would you agree with that? The world around us is rapidly changing. The culture is rapidly um, shifting in so many different ways. And until the mid-19th century, so you're really talking about the last um, century, you know, 1950s-ish, until that point, when you looked at uh, USA, United States of America, and you looked at Europe, okay, uh, you, what you saw largely was what could be defined as Christendom, so for about a thousand years at least you you could argue uh, there there 's been this Christianity has had this dominant influence in culture that it shaped culture is as, as recent as uh I would say clearly with Ronald Reagan when he was president in his speeches um, you had him referencing often in his uh inaugural speech and then politicians before major politicians. Would, would reference biblical themes in their explanations of who they are and what we're going to be as a nation, whatever. So Ronald Reagan talked about being a city on a hill as a nation. We're a city on a hill. What is that? What is he talking about? That's a reference to the Beatitudes. And, and so there was all these little phrases and verbiage and things that were part of culture that, that had, had been borrowed from Christianity. And so in Christendom, Christianity was the major influencer on culture. And so there was kind of an established, assumed morality. There was an assumed language. And all these things were common things that we all held. And whether you believed in Jesus or didn't believe in whether you went to church, didn't go to church, didn't matter. Everybody knew who Jesus was. Everybody knew these different phrases from the Bible. Everybody had a, a general working knowledge and, and were their worldview borrowed largely from a Christian worldview. Today it's not like that. Today there's a postmodern secular humanistic worldview. And Christians uh, people have more they're more influenced by secular humanism than they are by Christianity. We are more relativistic, postmodern, secular humanist. In other words, secular humanism is saying that that um, you know we ultimately determine our destinies and and we figure out what we need to do apart from God. And there, God's a caveat. God's a slice of the pie. God has a place in our lives, but He does not dominate everything. He did not. Uh, we don't live in a way that He uh, ordains and directs and rules over every facet of our lives. Not just our Sunday mornings, but um, our budgets. Um, the way we live our lives, the way we conduct ourselves, our families, the way we make decisions about um, school work, um, college, you know, play, whatever the way we look at everything is shaped and funneled through a biblical worldview that's not how people think today, even Christians often they they most of their worldview is shaped largely by the world and so we constantly at Cross life church want to be calling us ourselves back to a biblical Jesus-centered worldview of reality. Now, understanding this, um, in Christendom, the values of our culture were defined and shaped by Christianity and non-Christian beliefs and behaviors were considered wrong and shameful. So there's certain things that would, uh, like, for instance, homosexuality. Was it a problem uh, in the 1950s? Yeah, but you would never talk about it. I mean, was there immorality? Were there uh, people in immoral relationships outside of um, marriage, um, heterosexual um, relationships outside of marriage, yeah, it was all it happened all the time. But you know, but you still had I Love Lucy and Ricky Ricardo sleeping in separate beds, right? That's the way it was in our culture because you just would never put that on screen because that would be inappropriate because that's not the way culture saw morality. And now, what do you not put on screen um, on a normal sitcom? You know, there is blatant, incredible immorality stuff that should have been, um, you know, X-rated. Now is prime time because the culture has changed and Christianity no longer has a a control over what is viewed and the way we see things. And here's the problem with Christendom. Well, Tim Keller puts it this way. Tim Keller explains, The disadvantage was that Christian morality without gospel-changed hearts often led to cruelty and hypocrisy. So in other words, what happened is people tried to live up to a morality without a changed heart. And so they were just doing stuff, but there was no heart behind it. And so it created a lot of hypocrisy and, and a lot of people going through the motions and doing stuff without any heart change. And eventually they start postmodernism shifts. To, does it really work? Does it work for you? Because if it's not working for you, then, then throw it out. And so that's why you look at the church and the divorce rate inside the church is as high as it is outside the church, arguably higher. Why is that? It doesn't work. So that people just walk away from their faith. They walk away from Christianity. They walk away from marriage. They walk away from whatever. Yeah, it doesn't work. Let's just go do something else. And no longer is Christianity shaping, uh, Christendom shaping because it's about people start living up to list rather than having heart change. Marriage, a successful, healthy, God-honoring marriage flows from two people with changed hearts who are now free to love each other in a way that they couldn't love each other apart from changed hearts. And just because you have a quote-unquote Christian marriage. In other words, you're married in a church by a preacher it does not make you uh, have a successful marriage. The hearts need to be surrendered to Jesus. That's what helps you have a successful marriage, right? And so we, we went into gospel-changed uh, morality without gospel-changed hearts. Also, the church was largely silent over many abuses of the ruling class over the week. You see uh, the racism in our culture and in our country. And to this very day, there's churches and it makes it nauseates me that are still racist. I do not understand how you could read the Bible and be a racist. I don't understand that. I don't understand it, but it happens. I can, I mean, it happens in this area. It happened in uh, Mississippi when I was living there. There was churches that were like that. I don't understand that. And yet that's the way. It, so how, how is it that we can say we believe in Jesus and we can know that there's every tribe and tongue and nation and all this, and then yet we still have these ungodly views that are in violation of the word of God. How is it that um, people are dying everywhere with AIDS and that Christians immediately, the knee-jerk response in the 80s was, well, that's just uh, God judging sin. And so immediately Christians responded with incredible arrogance and judgmentalism instead of coming and washing feet and serving the poor and helping people, which is what historically Christians used to do. You know that in the, in, um, the early church, that in Antioch area, um, of north of Jerusalem, north of, of Israel, Antioch and then Tyre and Sidon, that um, about a hundred years, a couple hundred years after uh, Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, re- uh, ascended the Father, that um, there was a plagues that, that broke out and people were dying everywhere, and it was the Christians that were willing to risk dying and, and to serve the sick. The doctors, the elite, the religious people, not the Christians, but the other religious people, the 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 people in pagan worship and Roman um, mysticism and all that. Stuff, they all fled and they left, and it was the Christians that said, "You know what? We know where we're going. These people are hurt; they're dying. We need to go, and we gotta we gotta serve them." They were they ran fearlessly into diseased areas to minister and to help people, and Jesus was seen brilliantly through that. And then the eighties in America, AIDS hits, and what does, what does the church do? Starts pointing fingers. And I can. Thankfully, that has changed, and the church is leading the way by far. Missionaries are leading the way in serving people all over Africa and all over the United States and ministering, trying to, to to help people, not to just um, look past sin, but to love people so that they can actually speak to the heart issues rather than the moral issues. You change the heart, the moral issues fall. You understand? And so there's been a shift and a change, but, but because the church was silent, the church has lost its place in a culture. Except for in the heartland or the Bible Belt. And in Europe and in America, the only place that Christendom is still has a slight pulse is where we live. It's still slightly alive. And uh, that's not great. To be honest, I think we just need to put a knife in it and kill it. Christendom. And go back to pre-Christian World where we start thinking as missionaries, and that's really what my point is this morning, is to challenge us to rethink, to go ahead and give it up. Forget boycotting Target because they don't say Merry Christmas. Get over it, okay? Get over it. Their executives do not live in the Bible Belt, okay? Get up. They don't expect them to do that. They're 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 not going to do that. Stop getting mad because people. Everybody says Happy Holidays, okay? Stop getting mad because because um, you know our politicians are making horrible. Decisions and are, are leading our, our country for, further and further into godlessness. Okay? You can be active politically in the process. Certainly you should vote for people that, that um, are for life, that don't celebrate the murder and slaughter of children, um, of babies, which are children, unborn babies. Okay? Certainly vote against those people. Advocate for those who have no voice and be about that. I, that's, I, I think we should. But stop trying to get Christendom back on the map. We don't need a moralism apart from gospel-shaped and changed hearts. What we need is gospel-shaped changed and shaped hearts. And that's what it means to be a missional church, is we stop fighting for, for Jesus to be on the billboards again in our country and for there to be this layer of... I don't care if prayer ever comes back into the school. I don't care if they ever read Bibles back in the public school. To be honest with you, it will never, ever, ever, ever happen. It will never happen. The day we turned education over to the government and said, "Would you please educate our children?" and we took it away from families and churches, okay? The day that happened, we lost the battle at the beginning because then you started with arguments. Well, who's translated? Are We're going to use the Catholic version of the Bible. We're we going to use the Protestant version of the Bible. Are we going to pray to your God? Or are we going to pray to my God? Are we going to? And if the government's paying for it, at some point you have to say, "You know what? Let's just not pray to God." Because we're going to offend somebody by praying to somebody else's God. Let's just say, you know, we're not going to worry about that. We're not going to worry about Bible training. We're not going to worry about it. It's broken. You're not going to fix that. Get over it. And let's move on to sharing Jesus with the lost world around us. Instead of writing letters to the governor or the mayor or the whoever to get prayer back in schools. Forget it. Forget the prayer. Just pray. Let's stop advocating for prayer in schools. Let's just pray. Would that be better? Okay? If people prayed half as much as they, they have um, attacked and, and grieved over the fall of Christendom, we would see God doing a lot better things. And so Christendom is gone. It is gone. Most traditional churches can only win people to Christ who are still familiar with and have a spiritual heritage. Uh, and, and they still think in terms of how do we do missions in Christendom. And in Christendom, what you do is you put up a big tent and you invite people to come, you bring Billy Graham or somebody else in to do a big crusade, and you you share the gospel through a big event kind of thing, and it's all event-driven, and bring everybody, and we'll get them all in. And d- do people still get saved like that in this area? Yeah, they do. But is that are you going to reach people that are far from God that way? Mm, probably not. You're going to reach people that have stopped going to church that have that have fallen away. That would, but they still grew up and have an understanding of and whatever. That's, but it's no, it's ceasing to become an effective way to reach people today. So we're going to have to think through new models. And I, I, let me give you a little newsflash: the far majority of churches are still using the same methodology to reach people that they used and operated in under the time when Christendom was the was the um, the dominant influence in society. And so the people that are influenced by that the market is rapidly shrinking. I don't know if you noticed the numbers last week on the video that we showed about Cross Life's beginning, but there's been a uh, 12 to 18% decline in church involvement over the last 20 years in our area. And yet the population's grown by, by equally that percentage. So we've lost twice as much of a gap in trying to reach people. Population's growing, church's declining, people getting involved and plugged into churches. What does that mean? Old methods are not going to continue to reach people. And what, what do you find churches doing? Do you see them shifting and changing? No, they keep doing the old thing. So what does that mean? That means that we probably need to figure out a better way to do it, a new way. And that it, here's how we do this. You ready? Okay. You need to walk out of your house, go maybe drive out of town at some point this week, okay, out, out of the city limits, get out of your car, okay, walk around the car, uh, And and while you're outside the car, put on your missionary hat, Throw off the Christendom hat, put on your missionary hat, get back in your car, drive back into town, and begin to think differently and start to see the world as a missionary in a pre-Christian society. Begin to think in terms of Christianity has never landed on this land. We don't, nobody knows Jesus, nobody, and just begin to operate with the assumption that nobody's working off the same definitions that you are working off of, and we need to begin to think of our neighbors and our co-workers and the schools and the leaders and the people in our culture through uh, pre-Christian lenses rather than lamenting over Christendom. Here, here's the shift. Ed Stetzer called it. Uh, he, he explained this in a couple of different ways, and here's some examples on the, the board here. Um, seeing discipleship not as a program but as a process. That's one of the ways to begin thinking missionally. Discipleship is not a program. It's not a class you go to anymore. It's not the thing that churches do on Sunday night, discipleship class. It doesn't happen. No, it's a process. We're all in the process and we do that relationally, not in an event. You can't learn to fish on a chalkboard. You can't make disciples in a classroom. Okay. You can teach some things that help in the process, but ultimately it's a process. Uh, We need to shift from ministry models. Well, we can do this strategy or that. Why don't we get a bunch of buses and we'll take them to neighborhoods and we'll pick kids up and we'll bring them to church. Well, first of all, that is scary that somebody would put their kids on a bus for some church to go to. That scares me. Number one, number two, uh, the legality of that and the risk that you take on by having a bunch of kids on a bus with you know that just it is wow. That's not it is not the healthiest way to do it. And it doesn't really work today. Great tool during Christendom. You said well, the such and such church is doing it and they're growing doing it. That's great, but I'm telling you, shrinking market. Got to think for new ways to do this. Let's shift from. Uh, ministry models and let's start thinking about being on mission. Let's shift from thinking about seating and start thinking about sending. Okay, it's not about building the biggest building, it's about sending people out. Let's living into the community, you know, living Jesus in the community um, from decisions to disciples. You know, people will go on mission trips and they'll go to some place and they'll share the gospel. And they'll ask people, will "You raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus." And a thousand people will raise their hands, and then they come home and say, "We just led a thousand people to Jesus. It was incredible! Well, how many disciples did you make? How many of people were in church the next week? How many were baptized and incorporated and plugged into a local body of believers? How many of them are still walking with Jesus? They don't have a clue. Half the time, the people will raise hands in another world because they feel bad. I mean, you. Tr- you raised all that money, and you flew over there to go tell them about Jesus, and you asked them to raise their hands, so they raised their hand. I mean, they did the thing. And they're, but that doesn't mean their hearts are changed. Now, does that mean that we don't share Christ in, in open areas like that? I, there's lots of ways to catch a fish, okay? And we need to put as many hooks in the water. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But we do need to shift our thinking from making decisions to making disciples. Making disciples. Um, last of examples is a shift from monuments to movements from monuments to movements. I often get the question, are you guys going to get a building at some point? I, we might. We're not, not going to get a building, but that is not our A goal. Okay, That's not the A priority for, uh, for Cross Life Church to get a building. Um, I mean, we, we can go to multiple services, Lord willing, we'll do that at some point. In this facility, there's a lot of different things we can do. And in God's timing, if that's a, something we can do to more effectively reach people, that's fine. But if we ever build or Renovate or get a building or whatever. I can assure you, it will be uh, done in a way that we're very strategic and practical with it, and there will not be a monument to anybody. It's not going to be a monument. It's going to be functional. It'll be practical. It'll be um, the, we'll try to make decisions to do whatever we can. It'll be the best use of kingdom resources and reduce costs to not make a monument because we want to be about a, unleashing the people of God as a movement. And that's where we want to focus our energies, not into building some monstrosity that we use once a week. That makes no sense. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. So, mon- monuments um, to movements. Uh, let's look at some passages of Scripture that will help us in shape our thinking, what it means to be missional. Jeremiah 29, verse 1 says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, pause there. Here's what's going on. They have sinned against God. God has brought judgment against Jerusalem and Judea. Okay, And Babylon has come under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar and has come and has destroyed, um, and they besieged the city. People were dying inside, starving inside. They broke the walls down. They came in, they invaded, they um, destroyed, rape, right, pillaged, just ravaged the land and destroyed the temple, okay? And so and then they carried the, the, the cream of the crop of, um, of the Jewish people to Babylon, and they're now there in exile. And this is a letter from um, the prophet Jeremiah under the inspiration of God, challenging them and telling them what they need to do. And here's the part, you're gonna recognize part of this. I'm gonna read the part that we normally read, and then we're gonna go back and see what he's really saying. me with all of your heart and i will be found by you that's the part we 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 jump to but what's the passage really saying that that's not it we we this is what we're thinking we're thinking okay we here we live in this pagan world an evil city with an evil country with evil politicians and they're destroying our nation they're destroying our nationalism they're destroying all this stuff and so we're stuck in exile we're living with this and we're just waiting and praying that jesus will come back soon enough before um we're completely bankrupt because of um, you know, Obamacare, whatever the thing is that it, because of the inflation of the dollar, they're printing too much money or whatever. All those are problems and annoying and ridiculous that we're squandering all the opportunities God has given us a country. Yeah, that's frustrating, but you know what? Our citizenship first and foremost is in heaven. And so we, we look at that and we go, you know what? Let's pray. Jesus comes back soon. So we can just all get out of here and we can move on. And so we're going to hang on waiting for our 70 years until Jesus comes because he has plans for us. Plans to prosper, not for calamity, plans for, that's not what the passage, it is, what it, but it's not what it says. Let's, let's read it in order. Verse 1 again. These are the words, of letters to Jeremiah, the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. The priests, the prophets, all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Jump down to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives. Have sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will have your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. And I did not send them, declares the Lord. What were they saying? They were saying, you know what? Just hang in there. We're going to get out of here. Jesus is going to come, or not Jesus necessarily, but, uh, but God's going to deliver us from this. He's going to get us out of here. Just hang in there. Um, let's just pray against the city. We'll pray against it. And he's saying, those are false prophets. Let me tell you what God says to you. God says, plant some gardens. Dig, put some, put some roots down. Get married, have some kids, live, and then pray for and serve and live for the welfare of your city. Because if your city prospers, you will prosper. In its welfare, you will have welfare. If it does well, you're going to do well. What a complete change of thinking. And then the next verses, he says, are, for this is what I say to you. Listen, I have plans for you, plans to prosper. Not for calamity. Um, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then I will call up. you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. A couple of things that we learn from this: How should we live as exiles in the city God has called us to, in the region God has called us to? What do we do here? Do we just lament, get mad, and cry and be upset and you know and, and, and lament over the fact that we're not in Christendom again? Trying to, to do that, and lamenting that we have been. Uh, that God has sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy our land. I mean, do we just get mad about it? no? Just where you are, be all there. And here's what here's what you do. Great instructions for how we live in the culture that is rapidly becoming more wicked and ungodly and pre Christian. Verse 5 says, We need to settle in the city. Go ahead and settle down. Wherever you're, as long as you're here, be all here. Settle in the city. Verse 6 says, Grow in the city. Grow your family, grow the church, prosper. Okay, let's reach people. Let's grow. Uh, You know, let's plant our lives and let's do life here. And let's let's just dig in. That doesn't become doesn't mean that we want to become wicked or we want to become evil. He doesn't say anything in there about becoming ungodly, about, you know, why don't you just worship Marduk and the other false gods of Babylon while you're there? That'll be great. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, be distinct. Live for me. I'm your God. You're my people. Come back to me. Okay. And, and seek me, and you're going to find me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you there. But I, while you're there, don't disconnect yourself from the city that I have strategically placed you in to live, to be a light, to be a city on the hill, to be a light, to point people to me. Third thing he says is seek the city's peace and prosperity in verse 7. And if they prosper, the city prospers, you will prosper, the ESV says. In, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So God has called us to manifest an eternal city. Get this. He's called us to manifest an eternal city, heaven, uh, as an alternate city, the church, okay, to a temporal or lost city, Johnson City in the East Tennessee region. You got that? God has called us to manifest an eternal city that people can't see, except as it's lived out in our lives, the church, the body of Christ, to a lost and dying city, Johnson City, East Tennessee region, Tri-Cities region. That's what God's called us to be about. We are to be a city on a hill. We, as Cross Life Church, God has called us to live missionally and to live radically different lives, but yet not walled off from, you know, we, we don't want to go buy a giant subdivision or a piece of property and we're going to put a big fence around it, we're going to put a church in the middle, we're all going to build houses, and we're going to wall it off, and we'll just <clears throat> we'll have our own internal garden, and we don't have to talk to anybody, we won't get dirty, we won't have to talk to the, the wicked people in the city, and we'll just... We'll box ourselves in. It'll be great. We'll circle the wagons. That's not what he's called us to do. It's not what he's called us to do. It's not he's called us to live. He's called us to be about the prosperity of the city because if it prospers, we will prosper. Manifest eternal city to, as an alternate city for a lost city. God, Acts chapter 17, verse 22 uh, through 28. Let's jump there and look at that passage real quick. It'll give us a little more shape our thinking here. This is where... Paul goes to Athens, and he is looking for opportunities to share the gospel with the people of Athens. He talks in the synagogue and in the city place, and then he goes up until he goes to a place known as Areopagus, where they have all these religious, very religious, but pagan people, and they have all these altars set up to every god they they know about because they want to make sure they don't miss one, but there's one that's to the unknown god. In the event that they missed one on their list, They have a they have a little... Statue to the unknown God. And so Paul, being really wise, he goes in and he contextualizes the gospel. He doesn't change it. He doesn't water it down. He just figures out, how can I connect the dots between the God who created everything and uh, came and put on flesh in the person of Jesus and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, buried, rose again for our sins, um, resurrected by the power of God, and he has provided salvation if people would just repent and put their faith and trust in him. How do I connect the dots between that world that they don't know anything about and in the, in the the message of the Bible to this pagan culture? And so he sees this one platform that has a little statue, a little plaque that says, to the unknown God. And he uses that and he, and he begins to say, hey, uh, gentlemen, I, I understand that you guys are very religious people and I've come to talk to you about the unknown God that you have a little plaque for. I'd like to tell him, tell you about him. And so he begins to explain to them about the unknown God in in Verse 22, Paul stood in their midst, the Areopagus, and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I I proclaim to you. This God made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Does not he does not dwell in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. In other words, he's not like your gods that need a little house that you you made. You whittled your God and then you built a little house for him and you serve him and you bring him bananas and and you bring him fruit and you bring him all these different things and you sacrifice things to him. This God's not like that. He doesn't need your benevolent, gracious, fruit-giving. He doesn't need you giving your money. He doesn't need you building a little house for him and carving a little statue that represents. He doesn't need that because he made everything. Everything is because he caused it to be. He made from one man every nation in mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined, this is the key, focus on this, having determined their appointed times and boundaries and habitation that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him through Uh, Though he is not far from each one of us and in him we live and move and exist. And even um, some of you, your own poets have said, for we are also his children being then the children of God. We ought to not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thoughts of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Hello, hook, to get them interested. So he's just declaring them to Jesus, all about Jesus. So here, here's what we get from this. Verse 24, God made everything and everything belongs to him. The rest of verse 24, it says God made the world, everything in it. He doesn't live in temples made by men. God is not confined to a building. Um, he is, uh, he is uh, not made, he's not a statue made by hands or shaped in the human minds. Goes on to say, God is sovereign over where you live and who you live among and, where, uh, and when you live. So he, he is sovereign over where you live, who you live among, and when you live. Understand that. He is sovereign over where you're living right now. He is sovereign over the people you live among. He is sovereign over the date on which you were born. And he is sovereign over the date you will die. He has placed you here for a confined period of time. And while you're here, he has a plan and mission for you to live for the prosperity of the city. Because in his welfare, you will have welfare. He has called you to live for him and for his glory. God has invited you to seek him and find him. Now, here's the challenge in the gospel, and and, and I'm not going to read this, but in Jude chapter, uh, well, it's just one chapter, but Jude, I believe it's verse two and three, he talks about contending for the faith that was once delivered up for us. So here's the challenge for us being a missional church. Two things we need to do. We need to contend for the faith. We need to make sure that we are biblical in everything we say. We do not want to tweak, water down, manipulate, modify the gospel so that it will be more attractive to people, okay? You can't come to Jesus by sugaring up the cross. I mean, it's, you're going to have to die to live. That's what our name means, Cross Life Church. We have to lay our lives down to follow Christ. You have to repent to become a, G, to become a Christian. G, Christianity is not just, you know what, you can do whatever you want, but you don't want to go to hell, so go ahead and pray this little scripted prayer, and then once you've prayed this prayer, you can become a Christian. You can tack on Jesus to your pagan, me-centered life, and yet and you get to go to heaven. Great, huh? No, it doesn't work that way. That's not the message of the Bible. Clearly, Paul leads with, you've got to repent. You're gonna have to shift away from your ways, and you're gonna have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. That that's how we're saved. Acts chapter 20, verses 20-21. We are saved by repentance towards God and faith in in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. So we want to contend for the faith, but we want to contextualize the faith. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says, verse 19: Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order that I might win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I'm, not, though I'm ultimately under the law of Christ, that I might win them under the law. To the weak, I became weak. To the strong, I became strong. I do whatever I need to do because I want to reach people. I want to contextualize the gospel to them where they live so they can understand the gospel. I want to meet them where they're at. I'm not expecting them to come and conform and act like us so that they can come into our presence so that they can hear about Jesus. And, and you need to go ahead and here's a list of what you need to do to, to join back into Christendom so you can hear the gospel and be saved. No, we want to go to where they are with the gospel. And we want to live among them. We want to, to um, serve them. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 16 talks about um, giving a defense for the, for the um, hope that is within us. In your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord, as holy, always for being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be, be gracious about it. Be humble about it. That's why we constantly talk about we need to, in ourselves, be repenting and trusting in Jesus in the way that we live. When you leave in a moment, I have a list of things, and I'm not going to go through them right now, but eight ways to live missionally. Eight ways, and you know what? This is not an exhaustive list. We, we as a church, we've given you some opportunities to do that. That's why we do Pinecrest. We do Pinecrest as an opportunity to live missionally. Okay, we, we're gonna we're gonna do an Easter egg hunt at Pinecrest, and we're going to go through the gospel using little resurrection eggs, which is a great little tool somebody's come up with. But, but let me tell you, at, at our house, the angles one of the things we're, we've done for um, years back in when we were living in Mississippi. Since we've come back here, we continue to do this. Is Easter just a natural time? That we can point people to Jesus because it's a tradition. People hunt for Easter eggs and they give away candy. And you say, "Well, that's not even the gospel. That's not even that they've perverted it. and They've changed it." You know what? That in Christendom we get mad about that. But when we're in, approaching society as a pre-Christian society, and once we've we've thrown the Christendom hat on, we put the missional hat on, and we've come back into the culture, we look around and we go, "You know what? What do people do in the springtime? They do this Easter thing with bunnies and chocolate and eggs," and and yet. many of them don't even realize that Jesus is the whole point of the resurrection. What if we somehow use what's going on in culture as a way to share with them the love of Christ? And so in our neighborhood, we're praying that God will bring... um, some families, that to our knowledge, does not know Jesus. We're hoping that they'll come and they'll be able to hear the gospel. We're not, not going to have an invitation and turn up the heat in our house and get them all to come forward and make a pressure. Just, no, but, but it's an opportunity for us to share the gospel. And because they live in our neighborhood, we continue to build relationships with, with them so that we can get to continue to get to know them. And th- that's what it means to live missionally. So what if you begin to look at your once a week, you said, you know what, I'm going to take one day a week and I'm going to make sure when I go to lunch, or when I take my lunch break, that I eat with a not-yet Christian, a pre-Christian. Now, I'm going to eat with someone. I'm going to intentionally meet with them to encourage them spiritually. What if I begin going to the same bank teller every time so I can begin to build a relationship? What if we begin to do that in every aspect of our life? I'm not asking you to add new things to your list and, and more busyness. I'm asking you just to do everything you're doing with gospel and missional intentionality, and that is how God has called us to be intentional. Don't make the mistake of um, adding the stuff to your list and, well, oh, there's more stuff I got to do. Out of an overflow of a love for Jesus, we begin to live missionally, We begin to approach society different. We put on a missional hat and we begin to look as a pre-Christian world, how can we manifest the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel to the people, live for the benefit and the welfare of our city because in its welfare, we will find our welfare. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the wisdom to know how to appropriate and apply these things that we can live for your glory in the city that you have placed us, God. Help us to, Father, not to take these words and go, Yeah, that's that's that'd be great. Maybe someday I'll do that, but but to begin to look every day and pray for you to open our eyes in the morning for for us to begin the day thinking, okay, I'm gonna think as a missionary today, and approach every conversation, every opportunity as an opportunity to point somebody to Jesus through our conversation as we live and articulate and manifest the gospel in our lives, as we share Um, our need to repent and trust in Jesus and, and we can encourage others to follow you.